Well, hello, TBC family. Uh, gathering again uh, via video uh, with all of the, the virus and the economic crisis going on. It's still right that we gather around the Word of God. And uh, thankfully, we're living in a time where we can do that uh, via technology. And so we praise God for that. Uh, we're going to pick up in our Wednesday night through the Bible study uh, with the book of Deuteronomy. So let me pray for us as we get started. Lord, we praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your grace. Lord, we thank you that uh, even though we are not able to gather physically as a body, uh, we are able to gather together around the word. And so, God, we pray that you would use this time, uh, however, uh, whenever it is that we are gathering, we pray that you would use this time in the word to open our hearts and our minds to help us to see the beauties and the wonders of Christ, the beauties and the wonders of the truth of your word, and help us to live and walk by them. Lord, we pray all of this in your great name. Amen. Well, if you've got the notes, and they should be posted online uh, by now, but if you've got the notes, you can, you can follow along with me, or you're welcome just to, to listen along. But we're going we're to move through the book of Deuteronomy over the next hour or so. And, and look at the big picture of the message of the book, how, what is God doing in the life of Israel, how does the book apply to us now as the New Testament church, and ultimately what we're going to see and where we're going to arrive is uh, a major theme in Deuteronomy is the phrase, choose life. And so that's what we're going to see as we look at the book. The purpose and the theme of the book, uh, we've come to the last uh, fifth of the Torah, or the first five books of the Bible. And in this last book, uh, it contains really the final three sermons of Moses' life. It contains a second giving of the law, which is really what the, the, the title Deuteronomy means. It's a, it's a combining of two words, deutero, which means second, and namas, which is the word for law. So it's second law. It's the second time the Ten Commandments will be given in addition to those three sermons from Moses' life, those last three sermons. And, and, and in the midst of those, he's reflecting on the nation's mistakes, that Israel has made uh, numerous mistakes throughout its existence, and Moses is reflecting on those for the people, and he's urging the people not to make those mistakes again. Uh, we've come through the wilderness wanderings, the 40 years in the wilderness. We saw that in the book of Numbers. And now the nation is poised on the edge of the promised land once again, and they're about to, to make their entry into the promised land. And so Moses is urging them, remember where we've been, remember what's happened, remember all that we've done wrong, and don't do that again. Rather, be faithful and honor the ways of God. And so Israel's entry into the promised land, what we'll see is the, the fulfillment of the promise made to the patriarchs. And we'll come back to that a number of times. And so the book leaves us with all this anticipation, all this hope that the people are going to enter into the promised land of God and live as his people. Well, you can see the outline of the book there on your notes. I won't take time to go over that. But listen to this quote. Deuteronomy calls upon Israel to obey Yahweh in order to enter and stay in the promised land. So there's two parts to that. 
They're called upon to obey in order that they may enter. Remember the last time they, they were kept from entering because of their disobedience. But it will be obedience to God that will allow them entry into the land. But also staying in the land will rest upon their obedience. Only those who submit to Yahweh's lordship will experience his blessing. It is imperative to see that the call to obedience is predicated upon the grace of God, which means this, grace comes before the demand. And in this sense, the book anticipates the pattern of salvation found in the New Testament. So here's what this guy's saying. God doesn't call Israel to obey and then get his grace. He's not saying, if you obey, I'll be gracious to you. What, what the book shows us is that God's grace comes before his call to obedience. So he's saying, I've been gracious to you, therefore obey. I've given you the grace to obey, obey. And in that way, it's given us a glimpse into what's coming with the gospel because what we will see is that New Testament Christians, you and I, followers of Jesus Christ, we're not trying to obey our way into heaven. We're not trying to be good people so that God will be gracious to us. On the contrary, on the flip side, God has been gracious to us in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are able to obey. So another thing to highlight, Deuteronomy brings to the center Israel's responsibility to obey God. So along with the ability to obey, they have the responsibility They're on the edge of the promised land. God's reminding them before they cross the Jordan and enter into the promised land, God's going to remind them. Remember, this is a whole new generation. This is is not the generation, besides just a few, this is not the generation that came out of Egypt and saw all the wonders and camped there at Sinai and received the law. That generation's gone. They died out in the wilderness. This is a new generation, and so God is reminding them of his word and of his covenant and of their responsibility. And so a major part of understanding the book is understanding and remembering the covenant promises that God made to the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, the book opens by recalling these promises. If you've got your Bible open in front of you, you see in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 8, it says, See, I have set the land before you, Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them and to their offsprings after them. And so there they are, looking across the river to this land that God is going to give them. And he says, before you go, remember, remember that I have promised it to you. And so as the people stand on the edge, the Lord reaffirms these covenant promises to them and shows that he intends to keep these promises for them. But before they enter, he will not let them forget the disobedient generation, those he wiped out in the wilderness. The disobedient generation's failure to receive the blessing of the land was due to their failure to trust and obey God. Remember, they too, 40 years earlier, were at the edge of the promised land. God had reaffirmed the covenant promises to them. The promises were theirs. They had sent the spies into the land. The spies came back and said, it's a wonderful land flowing with milk and honey. But oh, by the way, there are some people that we don't think we can conquer. And instead of trusting God, they rebelled against God. And so God punished them by keeping them from the land. 
Well, over and over in Deuteronomy, the obedience commands given to Israel are given for the sake of preserving their life, of preserving their blessings, of preserving their home in the promised land. If they, if they want to achieve the land and if they want to remain in the land, they must be obedient to God. And this is one of the major themes of the book. I've listed a few verses there for you. I'm going to read just a few. In chapter 4, verse 1, we read, And now, O Israel... Listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Chapter 4, verse 40, we read, Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. So there you have the entry into it. Keep his statutes that it may go well with you and with your children and so that you may stay in the land. And then in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, we read, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach to you. This is Moses speaking. That you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And so there again, you've got these, these ideas of, of being obedient to God because he's God, of being obedient to God so that they may enter the land and possess it, of being obedient to God so that it might go well with them and that their children might be blessed and they might have a long family history there in the promised land. But as I said, the land is full of inhabitants. There are people already living there, pagan people, and Israel has to go in and conquer. And that's what, something God has already told them. That's what, that's what instilled fear in the hearts of the rebellious generations. But they had to go in and conquer. The people will not be able to conquer without God's help. That's crucial to understand. Israel, although Israel was a, a numerous people, well over a million people at this point, their power was not in their number. Their power was in the special presence of God with them. And so they would not be able to conquer without God's help. And what the book highlights, what Deuteronomy highlights, is that God's help comes through the people's obedience. The promised land is described with language that's meant to make us think about the Garden of Eden. There's several times I'll mention the Garden of Eden as we we talk through this, but it's got language that's meant to make us think about the Garden of Eden. Here from chapter 11, verse 10. For the land that you are going to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt, from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. 
What a, what, a, what a beautiful picture that they came from a, a hot, arid, dry place where they had to irrigate it so the, so the vegetables would grow. They're going into a place where God cares for the land from beginning to end. You see, the land is a gift of, of God's grace. It's, it's not a result of the people's obedience and their faith. God's, saying, God's not saying, I'm giving you this land because you've been so obedient. We need, to, we need to make that, that clear, keep that in our minds, because obedience is such a huge part of Deuteronomy. And yet, God is not saying, I'm giving you the land because you've been so obedient. Because as we know, Israel has been, is, and will be a, a disobedient, stubborn people. But God gives them the land as a gift of his grace. And he's reminding them of this. So before they ever go over into the land, he says in chapter 8, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. And so God says, Look, I'm calling you to obedience, but don't think that this is all because of you. The only reason you're going into this land, the only reason you have wealth, the only reason you're going to conquer is because I, God says, have made it so. And so Deuteronomy is one of the most important books in the Old Testament for understanding the rest of the Bible. If we're understanding all, all 66 of these books that we call the Bible, there's one story being told throughout the whole thing. Deuteronomy is, is a, a, a crucial linchpin, if you will, that holds a lot of it together. There's a lot of themes that come out that help us understand the rest of the Bible. And so for the next few moments, I just want to talk about some themes that emerge from the book that help us to understand it. And one of the, the major themes that emerges is the grace of God. And the grace of God is one of, if not the most prominent theme in the book. And it comes out in a number of ways. If you recall, while they're in Egypt, Israel was mistreated. They were abused. They were in Egypt some 430 years as slaves. And yet, God raised up a leader. He raised up a faithful shepherd to deliver his people out. We saw this in Exodus. He delivered them in full Part of them weren't left in Egypt. It was a, a full, complete delivery from their slavery. Not only did he give them their freedom, he sent them out of Egypt with all of Egypt's riches. If you remember back in Genesis, uh, God told Abram, I'm going to uh, bless your people, but they're going to sojourn in a land not their own for 400 years. And when they come out, they're going to come out with the riches of that land. And Exodus tells us that as they were leaving, as they were making their exodus from Egypt, they, they plundered or they, they took all of the riches of Egypt. And then if that weren't enough, that God led them out of Egypt in full, that God led them out of Egypt wealthily, gave them all of the wealth of Egypt, God wiped out the controlling superpower in the world at that time. They come to the edge of the Red Sea, God parts it, the people go through, and then God leads the Egyptian army into the Red Sea and wipes them out. Well, have you ever stopped to ask the question, why did God choose Israel? Why did he choose them? Why did he choose this people 
to treat with such grace, with such kindness, and with, with such blessing. Israel was not the only people group on the face of the earth at the time. Even when God calls Abram, Abram was one of many people on the earth. Perhaps millions of people on the earth. Abram was one man. And he becomes a nation. And that nation becomes one nation of of many. Not even the greatest or the strongest or the mightiest of nations. In fact, the Bible says that Israel is, is, is the smallest of nations. So why did God choose Israel? Well, see, ironically, uh, Israel falls into the delusion of thinking that God chooses them because they are good. Now, you and I know, and anybody who reads the Bible knows, Israel has a history of disobedience. They are not this great, holy, set-apart people on their own. They have a wicked history. They have a disobedient history. But somewhere along the way, some rabbis, which were Jewish teachers of the Bible, some rabbis constructed this narrative attributing God's blessing of Israel to Israel's faithfulness to him. So somewhere along the way, they said, well, look, God has been so good to Israel because Israel has been so good to God. Or God's God's blessed to us because we are good. Y'all aren't good. We are good. Therefore, God has blessed us. One scholar says, Deuteronomy proposes an answer that is diametrically opposed to this narrative. Why did the Lord choose Israel? Not because they were the only ones to accept God's offer. Not because they were the only nation on earth that was good. It is a matter of grace from start to finish. For Israel was a stubborn and disobedient people. From God coming to Abram in Genesis 12 to Israel's entry into the promised land, which we'll see in the book of Joshua, God's grace has been front and center. Abram wasn't looking for God. God comes to Abram. Israel wasn't so obedient. God couldn't help but bless them. Israel was disobedient time and time again. Israel has nothing to offer God, and God didn't choose Israel because they were better than all the peoples of the earth. There are a lot of stories in Genesis through Deuteronomy that would show us Israel's no better. If you've never read Genesis 34, that's a highlighting of, of, of just how wicked the people of God can be. God chose Israel because he wanted to show them his love. That's a crucial thing to get here. That, that Israel was not this set-apart holy people, therefore God kind of gravitates towards them. Israel was not obeying their way into God's good graces. Israel wasn't, wasn't obeying their way into God's heart. Part of understanding the truth in the, in the message of the Bible is seeing that God was good to Israel because God wanted to show his love. Israel didn't offer God anything. God offered Israel his love. God chose Israel because he wanted to show them his love. And even though, even though they showed no desire to truly follow him. There were times when they called upon God, when their backs were to the Egyptian army and they faced the Red Sea. They called upon God. God save us. When they were wandering in the wilderness and they had nothing to eat or drink, they called upon God. And yet they showed over and over again that they really had no true desire in their heart 
to follow him because after 40 days time while Moses had been gone up on the mountain what'd they do they said well let's get together and collect all of our gold and let's just make a calf to worship and then at the edge of the promised land when when they were when they were offered this land flowing with milk and honey that God said I'm going to give it to you what'd they do they said uh we we can't win these battles God has only brought us here to die They really had no true desire to follow God. You see, the wilderness generation, having seen God fight for them in Egypt and in the wilderness, did not trust God to fight for them in the promised land. Yet God would complete what he had begun. We see this in Deuteronomy 4, verse 20 and 37. We also see it in chapter 5, verse 6. God is saying, look, I've made a promise to Abraham. I made it to Isaac and to Jacob. I made it to the people while you were in Israel. I made it to Moses, and I'm making it to you today. What I have started, I will see through. I promised Abram that his people would gain the promised land, and here we are. You're about to take it. But you see, Paul in the New Testament picks up on this idea. It's not just a New Testament idea. It's a Bible idea. Because in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And in Philippians, he's talking about the, the, the work of the gospel. He who began the work of salvation in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So many of us suffer from, from doubt, from the, doubting the assurance of our faith. Am I saved? Will I continue to be saved? And one of the things the Bible highlights from front to back is that, is that those who are truly God's people can't stop being God's people. We can't lose our salvation because our salvation is primarily rooted in God's ability to finish it, not my ability to keep it, which is a good thing. Because if it were reversed, if my salvation rested on my ability to keep it, I'd lose it every day like Israel, but because it's rooted in God's ability, because it's rooted in God's power to keep and to finish, then it's assured. So on the banks of the Jordan, about to enter the promised land, Israel's called upon to remember all that God has done for them so that they learn to trust him for the future. God is saying, remember all, that, all that's been done. Remember all that I have done, all the power that I've shown, all that I've provided for you. Remember all of that so that when you look to the future, you remember, I'm trustworthy. I keep my word. I finished what I started. You see, their fear of what lies ahead, because there, Joshua will show us there were battles that lie ahead. There were, there were struggles that lie ahead. There were challenges that were going to lie ahead. That God was saying, the fear of what lies ahead of you is to submit to the faith of who God is and of what God has already done. As we, as we look ahead to what's coming, we are to submit any fear to the reality of who God is and what he has done. You see, that has direct application for us today. We're facing a crisis right now that's a health crisis and an economic crisis and a cultural crisis. Really, it's a global crisis. And as believers, as we are looking at the future and we're, we're having fear and anxiety about what's to come, 
God is calling us to remember all that he has done in the past, all that he has promised, to remember who he is, and to remember that something even as catastrophic as this virus is globally will not stop God from being true to his people. It will not prevent God from being good to his people. It will not prevent God from seeing us through this into salvation and life eternal with him. So thus we see Israel's not being called to obedience in order to gain God's favor, for he's already shown it over and over. As they stand on the banks of the Jordan, they must recall several things. They must recall what the Lord did to the Egyptians, and it's mentioned a number of times throughout Deuteronomy. They must recall how the Lord fought for them in the wilderness. They must recall that they are prone to forgetting God's mercy. They must remember that they are prone to taking God for granted. You're thinking about the church, you and I, members of the New Testament church. This is to be our attitude as we approach the communion table. You see the communion table just behind me here. As we approach the communion table as a church, this is to be our attitude. We remember that we approach on the basis of God's grace alone. We remember that when we approach the communion table, we're remembering what Christ has done for us at the cross. We remember that that Jesus has fought against sin and Satan on our behalf. We remember that we are prone to forgetting God's mercy. We are prone to taking him for granted. You see, the Lord's table is meant to remind and recenter us around God's grace. In the same way, when Israel stood on the banks of the Jordan about to enter the promised land in Deuteronomy, God was reminding them, of all he is and who they are. He was reminding them and recentering them around his grace. Every time we come to the communion table, we are reminded of the same thing. We are recentered around the grace of God in our lives. Well, another theme that we see in Deuteronomy is Israel's obedience. We see this come out. Israel was, was required to obey. They were required to obey God because of his love They were to obey God not only because he was good and loving, because he is, he is good and loving, but also because he's the only God. If there were multiple gods, then all of them would make their cases as to why they were the ones worthy of obedience, but that's not the case. The Bible tells us very clearly God is the only God, and thus he is worthy of our obedience. We can say that Israel's obedience is covenantal. It exists in the covenant bonds of God's promises. For the Lord calls for obedience in response to his covenant mercy by which he delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. So he's saying, because of what I have done for you, obey. I thought of a helpful way I think that can help us understand that. And that's the picture of marital love. A husband and a wife must love one another. They must. It's part of what it means to be married. They have to. They must love one another. The institution of marriage demands that spouses love one another. Yet, the necessity of marital love does not somehow prohibit genuine, affectionate, passionate love. 
See, sometimes we fall into this, this wrong thinking of, well, if I have to do it, then I won't want to do it. If you tell me I have to love somebody, then that just means I'm, my natural human response is to say, well, I don't want to love them. Or sometimes we think about marriage as, well, we just fall in love. It's something that just happens to us. It's not something that I have to do. One of the things I tell couples when I'm doing premarital counseling is that the Bible never talks about loving your spouse before you're married. See, that's how, that's how our culture talks about marriage. We talk about two people that fall in love and then get married. They get married because of the love that they feel, which is really more, more, more than not, it's affection that we're talking about. But love in the biblical sense is a choice. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a necessity, especially in the marital covenant. If you've been married a long time, you know that you need more than affection to go the distance. But you see, a husband and a wife must love one another for the marriage to work. And the picture, the beautiful thing is that the necessity of loving one another inside of a genuine good marriage makes way for genuine, passionate, affectionate love. It actually makes passion possible. And it's the same way with Israel. Israel to, is to obey God because they have to. But it's, but it's in obeying God that they actually find life and freedom and joy. You see, the call to obedience that fills Deuteronomy makes little to no sense apart from God's love. If all, we, if all we hear is that Israel has to obey God, if that's all we hear, then we'll fall into the, to the legalistic understanding of, well, I have to do this. This is what religion is. This is the right way. This is the wrong way. If, if, if obedience is separated from the love of God, then we've misunderstood obedience and love. Well, obedience is expressed all throughout the book of, of Deuteronomy in a variety of ways, and it's always, or almost always in verbs or action statements. Israel is to, quote, keep the Lord's commands. And I've listed there all the places or a, a, a good number of the places where that comes up. Commandments, the Lord says, must be, quote, put into action. They must be done. You see, when Israel obeyed God, they were stating by their behavior, they were stating the Lord is God. When we obey, we're stating he is supreme. We are stating our allegiance is owed to him and to him alone. But when we disobey, we're saying the very opposite things. When we disobey God, we're saying the Lord is not God. We're saying that God is not supreme. We're saying that our allegiance is to someone other than God. Thus, Israel's obedience or disobedience showed whether they were truly devoted to God or not. Again, going back to the marriage example, fidelity is the marker of commitment to the marital covenant. Being true to one's spouse, body, mind, and spirit is the evidence of whether or not you are genuinely committed to that marriage. See, if a man truly loves his wife, he will keep himself obedient to the marital covenant by only loving her. Now, we don't talk about it that way. We don't talk about a man being obedient to a marital covenant or a wife being obedient, but that's appropriate. It's probably more appropriate than the phrase falling in love. You see, he will 
honor his marital covenant by being obedient to it. That's how he most loves his wife. That's how a wife most loves her husband. And in the same way, we show our love and commitment to God through our obedience to his word. The point is that true love of God cannot be separated from keeping God's commands. That's the truth of Deuteronomy. It's a truth of the Christian life. True love of God cannot be separated from keeping God's commands. Deuteronomy helps us to understand that love is not merely a feeling. It's not merely a feeling, but it's affection that arises from obeying the Lord through his commands. See, one of the beautiful things about the Christian life is that the more I obey God, the more I love God. See, we tend to think about it in the opposite. If I love God, I will obey God. And the Bible says, no, it happens the other way. Through obedience, we come to know God and to love God more and more and more. Obedience to the Lord must be concrete and practically worked out in everyday life. But obedience is not exhausted by such terms, for there is a danger of thinking that obedience is merely external conformity to the Lord's will. True obedience involves affection, which means loving the Lord and clinging to him, finding him to be the praise and joy of one's life. So to say it a different way, we obey because we love God and we love God because we obey. And it's a beautiful picture. Well, the third thing we see in, in Deuteronomy is Yahweh's greatness and his supremacy, God's greatness and supremacy. Israel's called to live under God's kingship as they enter the promised land. They're on, they're on the banks, remember, they're looking at the promised land and God's saying, before you go... Remember that I'm your king. Here's how that's worked out. They're to live under God's kingship in the promised land by obeying his instructions. Again, it's a picture of Adam in the garden. I said a few times we're going to come back to the Garden of Eden. He too was to live under God's kingship in the land of promise. When the Bible opens, God is in, I mean, Adam is in the land of promise and God is saying, I'm, I'm putting you under my rule. He says, you can, you can have any fruit. You can eat of anything in the garden except that one tree. You can have dominion over the garden. Work it. Enjoy it. So in the same way, God is telling Israel, you're going into the land of promise. Live under my kingship by being obedient to my rules. This kind of brings, brings into clarity the offense of idolatry. It becomes clearer as we consider it in these terms. Because idolatry is giving our allegiance, giving our obedience, giving our love that is rightly due to God. It's giving all of those things to someone or something else. To love God means that we treat him as supreme in our lives. To have an idol means that we are treating what is rightly, or we are giving what is rightly God's to something or someone else. Which is why idolatry is such an offense against God. It's expressly forbidden in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. And again in Deuteronomy, verse 4, God forbids idolatry. They're not to worship anything in the creation, they are to worship God alone. P- part of this is because God is present in heaven and on earth. And in theology, we call this God's omnipresence, that He's everywhere. 
And his presence can't be confined to an idol. You and I, in our culture, idol worship is not overly prevalent. It is an Eastern culture. It was with, excuse me, in the people in, in Canaan, they worshiped idols. God can't be confined to an idol. And so he, he prohibits physical idol worship, but he also prohibits idolatry, which is treating anything other than him as God. This crystallizes the golden calf incident in the wilderness. The, the, the wilderness generation, the disobedient generation has already fallen into this when they made their golden calf to worship. You see, Deuteronomy chapter four, chapter 12, verse four reminds us that worship of God must be carried out in the ways that God says. We don't get to just come to God however we want to. We don't get to worship God however we want to. We worship God on the basis of what he has said. Well, the fourth thing we see that emerges from Deuteronomy is the theme of God's place and God alone. Big theme in the book is that Israel must worship God alone on his terms. God dictates where the nation is to worship him. And the point is that Israel must approach God and worship God in the way and in the place that he commands. God tells them all throughout the book, you'll go here and make an altar. You'll go here and worship me here. You'll worship me this way. You see, Israel's entry into the promised land represents what some Bible scholars call God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. This is how the Bible starts. We've got Adam and Eve, God's people, in the Garden of Eden, which is God's place, and they're under God's rule. He walks with them in the cool of the evenings. This is where the Bible finishes, Revelation 21 and 22. We've got God's people, the redeemed, in heaven, which is God's place, and God, the king, is there with them. They they are under his rule. So the Bible starts this way, the Bible finishes this way, and the whole movement of the Bible in between is a return to that. You see, we lose that in Genesis 3. God's people and God's place under God's rule is broken because of sin. Here on the promised land, we're almost given a foretaste that it's about to happen again. Israel, God's people, is about to go into the promised land, God's place, and they're going to be under God's rule. So Deuteronomy teaches us to anticipate the whole storyline of Scripture. It's giving us pieces to help make sense of what God is doing. Well, the fifth thing is that we see is obedience for the right reasons. Not just obedience, but God, God's concerned that we obey for the right reasons. Moses not only calls upon Israel to obey, but he also gives them the reasons and the right, the right motivations to obey. Obedience to God is linked to the well-being of Israel. He says, look, um, obey so that it will go well with you, because if you don't obey, it won't go well. It's linked to their staying in the promised land. We've looked at that a number of times. You see, if Israel turns away from God, God will eject them from the land. And unfortunately, as we'll see as our study goes on, we'll see that they are, in fact, ejected from the land for disobedience. The Lord promises blessings to Israel's children. 
He promises fruitfulness in their agriculture. He promises them good physical health. He promises them triumph over their enemies if they remain obedient. Their obedience is tied to God's blessing. And then in chapter 11 and chapter 30, God sets blessings and curses before Israel and calls them to faithfulness. This too is a glimpse back to the garden of Eden where God says, I'm setting before you the whole blessing of the garden. And here is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You don't eat from that tree. Here's all the blessing. And if you eat from this, if you disobey, curses will follow. So here again, the people of God, God is setting before them blessings and curses. Obedience will be followed by blessing. Curses will be followed, or curses will follow disobedience. The book itself is filled with many specific commands highlighting the reality that all of life in the promised land is to be lived out before God. They're not going to a place where God isn't going to be. They're not going to a place where God isn't watching them. They're going to a place where their entire lives will be lived out before God. All of life is religiously significant. You ever thought about your life like like that? From the moment you get up to the moment you go to bed, all of life, all, every aspect of your day is religiously significant. It's all an act of worship. It's either worshiping God or it's worshiping self. And God wants to remind them of this. He gives them a number of commands, specific commands. They're to be concerned about justice and compassion. They're to be concerned about religious war. They're to be concerned about kings. They're to have a deep care for the poor and the needy. God is building all of this into his law. God wants them to obey for the right reasons. He wants them to carry out a religious sanctified life for the right reasons. And that's because of who God is. Well, actually we see that that the book points us ahead. It's like a big arrow. You know, there's a lot of Bible still left to come and it's a big arrow pointing. There's things coming. And all of it's reminding Looking backwards, Deuteronomy is saying, now, there's a lot coming. Israel is reminded to consider the outcome of disobedience. They're saying, hey, remember what happened. Remember what God has said. Now, obey going forward so that you don't face the curses of disobedience, which they end up facing. The theme of blessings and curses looks forward to the future to come. They go through a time of blessedness. They go, through, they go through a time where God does, in fact, bless the land. But the biggest arrow in Deuteronomy is the arrow of Jesus Christ. The arrow of Jesus Christ. And we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 18. You see, the people needed a prophet. They needed a leader. They needed a leader who would be able to make them obey. You see, Moses, all he was able to do was to tell them to obey. He's urging them to obey. And God gives the covenant sign of circumcision. But the Bible talks about not needing an external sign of being a part of God's people, but needing an internal sign. So instead of just being outwardly conformed, I need to be inwardly conformed. I need to have my heart circumcised is the language that is used. 
And so Moses is telling the people, there will be a prophet coming. He won't be like me. He won't be like a normal guy. He will be a prophet that you need. You see, Moses wasn't the prophet. Moses sinned himself and was forbidden from the promised land. And in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, we read these words. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord at my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. The Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And whoever will listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will, will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet will surely die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word of the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And so he's telling the people, there'll be a lot of, there'll be a lot of prophets that come and say, God says this, and it's not true. But there will come a prophet raised up from among the people of Israel who will circumcise the hearts of God's people. He will not just give them the outward sign of being religious. He will fix their hearts so that they obey for the right reasons all the time. And that prophet is Jesus Christ. Israel needs a prophet to arise, a prophet better than Moses, a prophet who can circumcise their hearts so that they will truly love and fear and cling and obey God. Moses, while remembered as one of the great leaders of Israel, was not that prophet, nor do we see this prophet arising very quickly afterwards. It's not until the coming of Jesus Christ and the dawning of the kingdom of God do we see such a prophet arise. And so Deuteronomy has this massive arrow pointing, he's coming. He's coming. Well, how do we reflect and apply, reflect upon and apply Deuteronomy to our lives? Because it's important that we do. Deuteronomy is part of God's word. It has much to say to us about what it means to live the Christian life today. And while there's much to say, I've, I've distilled it down into two points. We need to see that God chooses his people. We also need to see that we must also choose God. And we'll talk about those briefly. God chooses his people. The one true God acted sovereignly to save the Jewish people from their slavery in Egypt. You see, if the people wanted to be saved, they would have tried to save themselves, but they didn't. As a matter of fact, once they got out of Egypt, what do we find them doing? Whining about God having saved them. They said, hey, the cucumbers and the fish were better. Let's go back. But what we see is that God acted sovereignly. That means all powerfully. He did so because he promised to save them. He promised them his love. The people starting with Abraham gave God plenty of reasons not to love them. 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all gave God reason after reason to not continue his promises. If it were dependent on them, then he had plenty of reasons to give up. But because he had promised, because it was he was the one working, because it was all from God, he saved them. God acts sovereignly to save. We see this in a number of ways. He's sovereign, he's, he is sovereignly saving the people in the exodus from Egypt, something he promised 430 years prior, or actually more than that, prior, now coming to pass. We see it displayed in his sustaining of the people in the wilderness. If God wasn't sovereign, there's no way he could have moved a million people into the wilderness and fed them and, and watered them and kept them alive. We see it in his giving of the law and the blessings and the curses. We see it displayed in the people's triumphant entry into Canaan, that God works sovereignly. God's, that, that, that God acts sovereignly makes his supremacy clear. If God's not supreme, then he's not sovereign. But he is sovereign, and so he is supreme. Israel's fate, this guy says, lies squarely in God's hands, right there. God holds Israel exactly where he wants her. God acts sovereignly to bring humility to man's pride. He acts sovereignly to bring man's self-trusting, self-boasting pride to nothing. God works for that reason on our behalf. You see, our pride, our trusting in self is a detriment to us. It leads us astray. It leads us into idolatry. And God sovereignly works to crush that so that we see clearly we need him and him alone. If God is not sovereign, there's no salvation. But alongside of that, we see that we must also choose God. We, we never have the option to choose God if God doesn't first choose us, if God doesn't first come to us. But we also see Deuteronomy highlights over and over again our responsibility to obey and walk in faith. It helps us balance the truths of God's total control over not just the world, but over our lives, God's total control. It also helps us see that we have a responsibility to respond and obey. While Deuteronomy and really the rest of scripture for that matter is clear that we do not come to God unless God first draws us, Deuteronomy helps us to see that being drawn to God in salvation includes obediently walking before him. While Israel was saved by God's grace and mighty sovereign power alone, that's the only thing that saved them, God's sovereign power while they were saved by that power, they were also called to respond in the right way. God chooses his people, yes, but we must also choose God. The choice before us is the choice God places before Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 30. If you have your Bible, go ahead and flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 11. You see, to obey God and walk faithfully before him is to choose life. To disobey and disregard God is to choose the way of curse and death. So I want to close with these words. Moses says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard. This is Moses speaking to the people. The commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. 
It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us so that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over across the sea for us and bring it to us so that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I have commanded you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days so that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. See, here's the, the application of Deuteronomy. The people show us, the rest of the Old Testament shows us, the people can't do this. God says, I'm setting before you obedience and disobedience. If you obey, salvation will follow. If you obey, blessing will follow. If you disobey, curses will follow. And you'll be expelled. And what we see is that God's chosen people, God's special people can't do it. So it's foolish if you and I think we can do it. So here's, here's the, the, the actual full biblical application of this passage. What God has set before us today is Jesus Christ. What God has set before us today is not this set of rules that says if we obey, we'll go to heaven. If we disobey, we won't. What God has set before us today is Jesus has obeyed. Jesus has fulfilled all that God requires. And so when we read this, ver this text of scripture through the lens of Jesus Christ, when we come to verse 19 where it says choose life, what God is saying to us is believe upon the name of Jesus Christ and be saved. You see, the Christian life is not some magic formula. The Christian life is the way to joy. The Christian life is the way to, to knowing God and having an abundance of joy and, and steadfastness in our hearts. It's, it's the way to handle a global crisis like the coronavirus with hope. Because we know that our God is sovereignly working all things out for the good of his people and for his own glory. And so just as God called Israel to obey, the same call is placed before you and I today. Because of Christ, obey. Because of Christ, walk faithfully before God. Because of Christ, choose life. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we can open your word and share in it together. God, I pray that you would bless the time that we've spent Pray that you would bless uh, 
your word in our lives. Lord, thank you for the, the clarity that the Bible brings to obedience. You require obedience of your people, Lord, but you, you require obedience because you are good and you are worthy of it, but because it is the path to life and joy for us. So help us to see that following you is the path to life, that there is no life apart from your son, Jesus Christ, that there is no following you apart from your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see, O oh God, that you are good and that you are sovereign. Help us to see, O oh God, that there is life in no one but you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We pray all of this in your holy name. Amen.